This editorially independent podcast is supported by Visit Flanders. I've got an interesting assignment this month for someone, and I know just the right person for the job. Oshin Kearney, my brother. Hello, Oshin. How are you? Good, yeah, how are you doing? I'm good. I um, have a question for you. Right. Um, would you go to Belgium to um, do a story for me on a, on a place on a brewery? Would I go to a brewery in Belgium? Yes. Uh, yeah, that sounds good. It's um, it's a it's a brewery in a place which is in Belgium, and that place is inside another country, the Netherlands. What? So you you go from Belgium into the Netherlands, and then there's a little bit of Belgium inside the Netherlands, and that's what the brewery is. Does that sound interesting? Yeah, sounds really cool. Okay. Where do you want me to go? Um, soon as possible. Okay. <laughs> sure. That sounds good. Um, I'll I'll send you an email with all the details, and um, yeah, you can maybe spend a few days there and work out what the hell's going on over there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm up for that. Cool. Okay. Thanks. Gotta go. All right. Talk all to right. you. Bye. Bye. Hello. Hello. Ronald. How are you? Very I'm busy. Really day. Oh, really? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Hi. Lovely to meet Hi. you. Hi, I'm Kira. Lovely to meet you. Oshin, Kira. Uh, yeah, because uh, I'm bubbling and it's a new line. Okay. And uh, today it wasn't working that well. Oh, I'm so sorry. So, can I offer you a drink and then sure. maybe in. in Half an hour, I should be ready. Sure, yeah, no problem. No problem. Okay. Oshin is a writer and director for stage and screen, originally from Warren Point, where I'm from, uh, but now living in Edinburgh in Scotland. One of his plays is called The Alternative. It was the winner of Fishamble's A Play for Ireland initiative. It premiered at the Dublin Theatre Festival in September 2019, toured six theatres around the country and was nominated for Best New Play at the Irish Times Theatre Awards. The other voice you heard there was Kira Elizabeth Smith. She's Oshin's partner. She's an award-winning playwright from Dublin. Her plays have been presented by the Abbey Theatre, Fishamble, the New Play Company, Dublin Fringe, Project Art Centre, and the Bewley's Cafe Theatre. Mm, beautiful. Mm-hmm. So the, the bottling machine, it's, it stopped working, or? No, the face packer and the new labelling machine and the depelletizer and oh. everything. Everything oh. is new and, and sometimes uh, not... Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, you take your time. 
And then the guy who's having a terrible day, Ronald Mangerink. He's the owner and brewer at Brouwerij de Dokter van de Korenaar, located in Barla, officially in the province of Antwerp, but located on the other side of the international border with the Netherlands. Barla is one of the most complex border areas in the world. It's divided into a patchwork of enclaves, with the borderline straddling farmland, roads and even houses. Of the roughly 10,000 inhabitants of Barla, 3,000 live in the Belgian territory, Barla Hertog, and identify as Belgian, whereas 7,000 live in the Dutch territory, Barla Nassau, and identify as Dutch. Much like Barla, Ronald Mangerink defies categorization. He's a Dutchman who makes Belgian beers with French names and American yeast. He is a maverick who does not fit any mould, making both hobby session beers and high ABV barrel-aged experiments in a village that defies cartographic sense. He's been a chef, a seller of olives, seller of sausages, seller of cheese and a builder of swimming pools. Today, he's a brewer who merges disparate influences into something distinctly his own. I'm Brandon Kearney, and you're listening to the Belgian Smack Podcast. Wire of Death. Um, I think as part of that trip, you also went to some big conference or knowledge sharing um, uh, event in the Netherlands, right? You know, it was actually in Germany. It was in Wuppertal. Um, there was a a session on borders uh, with the focus on the Irish border. And there were lots of academics attending from all over Europe, but uh, generally from Ireland and Germany to discuss borders, um, especially in the in the light of Brexit and the new focus on, on the Irish border and how borders are changing around the world. And if this was an event which was jam-packed full of academics, what the hell were you doing there? That's what I thought to myself. Um, no, I was invited um, because um, I've been looking at borders a lot in my work uh, the last sort of five to 10 years, um, specifically in documentaries and plays. Um, so I'm a, a playwright. I've co-written a number of plays with a, my partner, um, Michael Patrick, and uh, our last play that we... Our last play that we produced was called The Border Game, and it was celebrating, well, not celebrating, but commemorating 100 years of partition in Ireland. So it was looking at 
um, what the history of 100 years of a border in Ireland had done to the to the island, specifically by um, focusing on the people who lived along the line. So we went round the Irish border and we interviewed roughly about 100 people from both sides of the line um, of all ages, genders uh, and religious backgrounds and ethnicities. And we we basically interviewed them about their experiences of the border, their memories of it, their their views on it. And we synthesized all of that material into a, an 80 minute play, which was on in Belfast and then toured the island. And like, you know, obviously there's, you know, so many different colors and so many different perspectives, but is there anything that you kind of, from that exercise where you, you spoke to a lot of people that kind of, that became clear from, from people living on a border, like how it affects them? I think every person's individual experience is, is different and specific, um, but there are general patterns that emerge. So um, there is definitely across the board, there was definitely identi- an identity of being a border person or, or a sort of a third, a third way or a third country this border identity of neither one thing nor the other, but also both. Um, there's also a distrust of the centres. So uh, specifically in, in the Irish border, there there was a distrust of, you know, politicians from Belfast, Dublin or, or even London, uh, that they really know what it's like to live along the border. But also there's a real flexibility to border people. I think they understand that they're at the edge and they don't have such a solid view of one thing or the other. It's not black and white along the border. It's more gray and pockets of gray. And that also leads into maybe a treat, uh, a gray treatment of the laws as well. They, they see them as much more, you know, if it suits me, I'll do it. And if it doesn't, then maybe there's a different way of doing things. So they're quite inventive border people. And there's this brew house quite a simple system, but fairly large. Yeah. I can do uh, 5,000 liters or 50 hectoliters per batch, and if needed, uh, twice a day. But that's, that's so far not needed. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, so it consists of a hot water tank, a mesh and filter, uh, what do you call it? <laughs> And and a, and, a, and a boiler whirlpool. Yeah. Uh, all the beers are of course uh, full malt. That that's why the the, the mesh is quite wide. Yeah. I can do uh, 1,800 kilograms of malt in one uh, in one brew. Okay. So when I called you and said, look, I'd like you to go to Barla, which is a, a bo- I guess it's, you could call it a border region and one which I think is more difficult to explain than most. Before you went, what were you kind of expecting or what what was in your head, you know, sort of before you arrived there? Not much was in my head. Um, I actually hadn't really heard about Barla, um, but going back into the research of the borders that I'd done for 
for my other work, I realized that I had come across it. It was in my research notes, this place, um, which is, you know, a piece of Belgium that's within the Netherlands and pieces of Netherlands that are within Belgium. And uh, it had sort of been an academic anecdote uh, for me. So I was actually quite excited to go and see the real place. Um, this is a place which, if you look at it on a map, it's kind of, it kind of makes you audibly gasp. Um, it's, it just doesn't make sense how this, uh, this cart cartographic kind of splotch uh, came about. And certainly it seems to be much more complicated uh, in terms of drawing that line than, than any other border I come across. Um, so I was quite excited to see how, how it actually works on the ground and, and what people think. So is the whole brewery in Belgium? Yeah. Yeah, and then the border is kind of around it, yeah? Yeah, the yeah. border is, 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 is the... Uh, is where our... our, our uh, the gate, is it? The rain yeah. stops. Oh, yeah, so it's... <laughs> all the neighbors, it. all the neighbors are Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Barla is not just, it's not just a piece of one country bordered by another country. It's actually parts of one country within another country, within the original country. Uh, it's these things called enclaves. And there are only 64 enclaves in the world. And 30 of them are actually in the Barla area. So an enclave is a piece of independent country inside another independent country. So it's kind of, you know, it's it's quite a messy situation. So the, and this area itself has, you know, almost half of them in the world. So I, th I thought that was pretty fascinating in terms of how that actually works on the ground, you know, where people just walking around really confused or do they actually know what country they're in, uh, you know, as they take each step. So I wanted to see what that was like. Dochter van de Corona means beer. It's the daughter of the heir of corn. Uh, there is uh, Charles, the, the emperor, Charles V. He had a saying that he, he preferred uh, the juice of the daughter of the heir of corn better than the blood of the grapes. So he liked beer better than wine, and uh, I, I read it at some time, and I was thinking, okay, uh, whenever I'm gonna reopen a brewery, it will be called the Dochter van de Corona. And the brewery itself is actually on the very edge of one of the Belgian enclaves. So it's within Belgium, but the border itself goes along the outside of the brewery. It's almost like it was purposefully put on the border. And it's, it's, it's pretty astonishing to know that the, the border runs around the brewery, which means that the neighbors are Dutch and are living in the Netherlands, but the brewery itself is in Belgium and it's run by a Dutch man, but the beers are actually given French names. So it's quite a confusing one. Um, 
it's a it's a strange place, but I think it it also encompasses the fluidity of the of the identity around this area. Um, do you think what, what do you say is the identity of the beer? Is it it's very much a Belgian beer, or do you think it is also no. Dutch? No, no. Mm, no, I think it's more international. Mm. Um, I'm of course influ influenced by by Belgian flavors, uh, but I think in 2008 or 2009 I did a journey to the United States and discovered American hops. Mm. Uh, Bell's Two Hearted was one of my first IPAs to taste. And I was quite surprised of all these different fruity flavors. Uh, so back home, I started brewing the Belle Fleur. So buying American hops and experimenting with it. And uh, I, think, I think I was one of the first in Belgium to start using American hops on a larger scale. In my, in my hop storage now, I have about 40 varieties of hops. Almost all my life I had something to, to do with uh, food or beverage. Mm. I've been a chef, uh, I've been a brewer, or well, I'm a brewer again. <laughs> and I was, I was selling uh, olives and, and Italian sausages and cheese for five years. Oh. And then a little little part, I, I was building swimming pools. Oh, really? <laughs> well, you need money, so <laughs> you need to do something. Fantastic. Uh, I was about three years old. And uh, my parents were having uh, these large uh, uh, wedding wedding parties mm. <clears throat> because they because they come from the east and back there they they, they have uh, very large wedding parties, two hundred persons, and all the people were dancing and drinking beer, and I was a little boy. And I, 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 probably I fancy beer because I was I was emptying all the half glasses, <laughs> and uh, later on they noticed that I was sort of <laughs> walking around. <laughs> What's the matter with <laughs> with the boy? And then they they saw me drinking the beer. <laughs> How old were you? Three. <laughs> <laughs> So probably I had my first hangover the other day. <laughs> that I don't quite remember. But I but I remember that I like beer just instantly. Mm. So. Yeah. And when did you start to uh, consider brewing? Because you said you were a chef as well. Yeah, after after my first brewery. Okay. Um, I, I started brewing on a hobby scale when I was fifteen. So also quite young. Mm. And my first brewery was when I was 21, no, 22, mm. yeah, 84. 
And what was what was the motivation to begin brewing? Uh, I quit my study. <laughs> so I had some troubles with my professor. I didn't didn't agree with him, and uh, then I said, okay. Then I st stopped my studies, and uh, then I had to think of doing something else. What were you studying when you had the... Uh, geography. Geography. And what happened with the professor? Uh, I was in my second year. And, uh, well, the first year, of course, I was partying a lot. And, and uh, I had a lot of uh, re-exams. And uh, I got them all except for one. And it, it was only uh, one-tenth of a point. And uh, I needed that to, to, uh, to be able to start the second year and do the first two exams. And it was just a matter of, of uh, explaining uh, what... Uh, so my answer was, in my own words, what he meant. But it was not his words. Mm. And he wanted me to... to put it in his words. Mm. I said, but this is the same. Mm. <laughs> no, 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 no. So, so um, he, he's got this ambition to become a brewer. Um, does he, you know, does he then move to battle and start Dr. Van der Koor or not? Not yet. He, he went to a bank uh, after he left his university degree and he said, I want to start a brewery. And his first brewery was called the Nordazon or the Northern Sun. And he started this, uh, you know, when he was in his early 20s. Um, he didn't really know what he was doing. He was uh, experimenting. He was, you know, just, just basically flying by the seat of his pants, uh, trying to do this thing that he loved to do. Um, but the Nordazon didn't really last very long. Um, it was a couple of years uh, and things were very difficult for him. Um, you know, interest rates were high. He didn't have the internet to, to, to look up how to do certain things. Um, and basically, the brewery ran into financial trouble. And though he tried to keep it going after a few years, he, he eventually ran out of money and he had to, he had to move on from that. Um. Uh, in in 1984-85, I had a small brewery in Groningen, the Noorderzon, but that was in a quite difficult time. Interest rates were like 12.5%, 13%, mm. so nearly impossible to, to, to do something. And I was quite young, uh, inexperienced. Internet didn't didn't exist, so you had to, you, you had to find out everything for yourself. Uh, so after one and a half year, I ran out of money and I had to stop. <laughs> oh, really? So I, I, I was living in Groningen, uh, and I noticed it was a student city, and there are a lot of bars. And special beer from Belgium was just coming up. 
Duvel en, en uh, Palm, de Koning, La Chouf. That's about it. Mm. And Guinness, of course. But, mm. <coughs> um, but I thought mm, there might be might be an interest in, in, in special beer. And since I was brewing beer uh, for my 15th, uh, I, I started thinking of building a brewery. Mm. So I went to the bank, <laughs> just, just a little note. This is what I need. It costs about 50,000 guilders. Uh, so can I can I borrow some money? <laughs> uh, yeah. How much do you have yourself? Uh, nothing. <laughs> so after after my parents helped me out a little bit and a friend, uh, and then the bank said, "Yeah, okay." And that was all in one day. <laughs> wow! Wow! Just no no business plan, nothing. <laughs> Just this is my plan. I'm going to start a brewery. Ah, okay. <laughs> Things have changed. And I did. Yeah. <laughs> after, after one and a half year, when I ran out of money, I went back to the bank and said, look, uh, I know it's, it's, it's not working out quite well yet, but I'm absolutely convinced that it will in the near future. I just need a little bit more money. <laughs> and they declined. Uh, they said, no, 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 uh, Holland is going to stay a Pilsner land. Special beer, it's not going to happen. Mm. And I said, no, 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 it's, it's going to increase with at least 20% a year. Mm. And we were both wrong. It increased with more than 100% a year. And after, after a couple of years, I went back to the bank uh, because I still had debts and uh, and they said look you were right back then so ah so now we are even <laughs> no 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 you still owe us money <laughs> but uh, so no my my first experience with a large bank was not so good mm. but then that opened up a lot of avenues for Ronald he he decided to do lots of different jobs you know he was um he was selling sausages at one point he was building swimming pools when my when my son was born i i restarted brewing uh on a semi professional scale 500 liters per, per batch um, and every time i went to france because at the time I was, I was building swimming pools, but in winter time, of course, you don't have that much work. Um, so especially in winter time, I went to France to, to do up the house. Um, and then every time I, 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 I was bringing beer. So the, all the locals knew I was, I was bringing beer. And I sold the beer over there and from the profit, I was able to buy materials, mm. and uh, so it didn't cost me that much to rebuild the house. Yeah. yeah. So when we sold it in in uh, 
2007, we had a big profit. Mm. And for, from the profit, I was able to buy the, after to build a brewery. Yeah. The Belgians can be quite a, um, a proud nation when when it comes to their beer, and there's you know it's, it can be quite difficult for outsiders coming into Belgium to sell their beer or to make any impact in in the market. Did you get any sense from Ronald that he experienced? Um, you know, any tension or any any barriers because he was not Belgian himself, but actually Dutch from the Belgian brewing community? Oh, definitely. Um, Ronald said to me that, um, you know, it was difficult to win over Belgians to his beer at the start. Um, he said that, you know, a lot of Belgians thought, oh, you know, that's Ronald Mengerink. He's that Dutch man. You know, Dutch men can't come to beer. Um, so definitely there was a, a stigma against, you know, Dutch brewers brewing in Belgium because maybe they thought that Belgian beer was a, you know, it was on a pedestal. It was this sacred thing that no Dutch man could do. Um, and certainly for Ronald, he, he fought against that and very proudly uh, says, you know, I proved them all wrong. You're still in Belgium. Uh, the only thing that might matter is that I'm personally, I'm Dutch. Mm. So uh, in the beginning, it was quite a, quite a hard time to, to convince people that, uh, that I could grow beer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because all, all the Belgians thought, oh, that's a Dutchman, Dutchman, Dutchman can't, can't brew beer. <laughs> but I proved the opposite so uh, now it's kind of different uh, the, the younger brewers are more or less looking up and that uh, nostalgia you speak of um, can you explain that to us a bit? I don't know it's, it's, uh, you have to look in the cellar it's the smell, it's, it's, it's how it looks, uh, working with, with oak. As, as, as a young boy, I always wanted to be a carpenter. So working with oak or, or wood. Uh, and th th that's maybe part of the explanation. Mm. But yeah, it's just, the smell, the taste. It's kind of romantic. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. In the early years, uh, like I said, I was I was one of the first to start uh, brewing on a larger scale with with American hops. Mm -hmm. One of the first to start barrel aging beers. Uh, I'm still one of one of the few brewers that uses new oak barrels uh, and experimenting with it, uh, with the toasting levels and the variety of oak. Uh, duration of, of, of aging the beer. Um, so it's, 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 it's not really pushing the boundaries, but uh, more like um, 
looking what's what's possible. Um, and in some instances, um, I make a, a, a sort of port, but out of beer. But it's exactly the same as they make make a port wine. So uh, I start brewing a special beer, and then uh, when the fermentation is, is, is only like one and a half or two days away, I add grain alcohol to stop the fermentation, and then it's aged in oak for, well, the, the oldest barrels are now almost seven years old. Mm. And uh, they will stay there until they are 10 years old. And then you get something quite unique. Mm. Uh, and this, this, these kind of things is, is, is what I like. Mm -hmm. Is there anything in in kind of Barla's history or you know stories about the town that kind of are, are a good way to evidence that it's a, a place which is kind of divided by borders? I mean, it's everywhere. Uh, if you go there, you'll see not only the the borders cutting through the town. You know, it's actually on the ground of the town or, or cutting through buildings, but. Um, the history of borders and the history of war is very present there. Um, I think, you know, only uh, a, a few minutes drive south of uh, Barla was this thing called the Wire of Death, Dodendrad. And it was um, basically, it was a 2000 volt wire that um, was installed uh, during World War One. And it was over 200 kilometers long and sometimes it was five meters tall. Um, and basically it was to stop people uh, leaving Belgium to go to the neutral Netherlands during World War One. And, you know, this was a time uh, in the early 20th century when a lot of these rural areas in Belgium and, and the Netherlands didn't even have electricity. So now there was this this electric wire that was used to stop people traveling across the border. And the total number of victims is, is estimated at something like 3000 people. And, you know, if people didn't die from getting executed, from, from getting electrocuted, uh, they would have been executed by German guards and, and shot. Um, so it was a very, a very horrible thing that happened there. And uh, it certainly has cast a shadow over the place. Yeah. Were there any ways that, you know, people were able to circumvent that border that were able to cross that wire of death or was it impenetrable? Although it was a very, you know, it was 2000 volts and it was manned by German guards. There were parts of it that maybe, uh, you know, you could outwit the Germans or you could try and sneak past and uh, locals would use lots of different tactics. They would pull vault on over it. They would dig tunnels under it. But I think the one that stood out to me was um, that they would sometimes use beer barrels um, and they would put the barrel in between two lines of the wire and sort of squeeze it in there so that the wire was touching the barrel, the wooden part of the barrel. And then the locals would uh, crawl through the barrel in order to avoid being electrocuted and uh, get to the other side.
Part two, Border Town. Borderline is here. So these doors are, that's the Netherlands. Dutch? Yeah, those are Dutch doors, but we are walking in Belgium. This is a Belgium one. Right. So that's Dutch and that's Belgium and there's about half a foot. This, this church is the Belgian church from Balaerka. And here is a closed shop. I hope they open uh, soon. Where you coming from Belgium into the Netherlands in the shop. So you go for an international journey when you shop yeah. in there? Yes, maybe I can start uh, to explain the situation from the beginning. Please we do. sitting now on this nice table, you see. It's a map of our uh, area here. First I take a bit of coffee <laughs> and then I move up. So when I went to Barla, um, the first person I met was a guy called Willem van Gool. And he is the, the chairman of the local tourism office. So if you want to know anything about Barla, he's the man. Uh, he's Dutch himself, um, but I think you know parts of parts of his family are Belgian, and um, basically he's uh, he's the one who can tell you all about the enclaves. My name is Willem van Gogh. Uh, born here in the village, out of two parents. My father was Belgian, my mother was Dutch. They moved up to from Berlin Hertog to Berlin Nassau, and then you became. Dutch when you are born, so I'm Dutch. And I do this job now for almost 20 years. Yeah. So his um, his role, part of his role as a Dutchman uh, working for Barla would be to promote tourism in another country, Belgium. Yes. Because the the area of Barla is re more recently starting to see itself as one place, you know, Barla Hertog and Barla Nassau, even though it is essentially two countries uh, and two villages with two mayors and two systems of government. Uh, but they're they're promoting themselves as one place because they see it as as better for the economy and better for the area and for tourism. Um, you know, one thing helps one country that also helps another. Um, so the big thing that he was saying was we are the capital, the world capital of enclaves, you know, because they have 30 of the 64 enclaves in the world. So, um, you know, it's, he's sort of promoting the area all as one, um, even though it is two countries. Well, the dark green part you see is the Netherlands. Yeah. Okay. The light green part is Belgium, and here you see the borderline. It's a rather straight line, and there it becomes a bit messy. But Google cannot make round shapes. It's a, a river. It's following a river. Oh, very good. Yeah. 
Okay, so you see light green uh, Belgium, dark green the Netherlands. When we coming from Belgium, turn out, then we have already one enclave and go further, approximately four and a half kilometers, then we are in the center. And you see we are here, which is dark green, so it's the Netherlands, Barbara I told you one enclave, two, three, four, five, and there to 22 pieces of Belgium into the Netherlands, hmm. which is very unique. Yeah. Uh, there are no place on earth that there are so many enclaves in one area. Mm. But then we are not ended. We have also one, two, three, four, five, six, seven Dutch parts into, into those enclaves. Okay, so there's pieces of the Netherlands which are inside Belgium, which are inside the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah. and there's one left on your side, but it's not on the map. Yeah, like that one, that's a, that's in Belgian enclave. Uh -huh. But we have also a Dutch enclave over the main border, but it's not on this table. Okay. <laughs> he took us inside to this, uh, this big room with a big table on it that had this printed map. And it was uh, the map of Barla. So it was all of the enclaves, all 30 of them. And you could sort of, you know, follow the map along to see where the the bar the border actually cut across. Um, so it was a it was kind of a, a shortened history lesson that he gave us, and he he spoke he spoke you know at pace about the last sort of hundreds of years of Barla history. In total, thirty um, enclaves in this area. Um, a question. Maybe you know how many enclaves are there in the world? No. 64. So which is not a lot. And that's according to the, uh, the uh, definition of the Fulkenbright. Yeah? Wow. Which is saying that an enclave is a piece of independent uh, country into another independent country, completely surrounded by that country. That's an enclave. Yeah. There are more types of enclaves, but that's a more light one, firstly, so to say. You can imagine that uh, there is an enclave and here is the sea, then it's not surrounded. Hmm. It all started back in the day, um, whenever, you know, in medieval times when there weren't countries, countries didn't exist, so the, what you had was just landowners and the the two areas were owned by um you know the the duke of brabant uh hertog meaning duke and the house of nassau which was uh, which held the lordship of breda so he, um these guys basically held on to this land and um they whenever they were drawing up borders they said no i like this land these are these are my fields so i'm going to hold on to these and we we'll come to some some sort of arrangement and basically that arrangement has stayed to this day because, um, you know, when Belgium became independent, those those borders were still there. Um, and, you know, I think Napoleon tried to sort of make it all one area at one time as well. But but the, the borders kept coming back and there's been 15 attempts to change the situation. Um, but. I mean, it's 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 per, it's persisted to this day because it's it's so complex and and the identities are so strong there. You know that uh, people living in Bar Barla Hartog are very much Belgium. 
Belgian people and they, they don't want to live in the Netherlands and the same for Barla Nassau, they're they're Dutch and they're we're not Belgian. So it's very hard to change something when, when those when those identities are so ingrained. And is that is it something that you can see when you just <coughs> when you just walk around Barla? The border. Yeah, I mean is there is there any is there any evidence that that there's international borders running through the town as you know, as you walk through it? Yeah, it's it's everywhere. If you walk along the the, the pavements, um, you can see uh, there's little sort of crosses on the ground, little white crosses, and then there'll be a little plaque that says, uh, you know, Netherlands or Belgium, and uh, so you can you can see it. The border is actually marked on the ground. Um, also, every door has a number, and then it has a flag, and the flag tells you whether or not that door. That, that property is in Belgium or is in the Netherlands. And this is because they have this thing called the front door rule, which is basically wherever your front door is, if it's if your front door is coming out onto Belgium, then you live in Belgium. If it's coming out onto the Netherlands, then you're Dutch. Um, so yeah, they, they, they kind of have to demarcate the whole town on that basis. So everywhere is just, there's just borders and flags everywhere throughout the whole place. We have a front door rule. Where your front door is based, that's the country you live in. That's where you have your domicile. But you can also be uh, a Dutch one and living in Belgium, like you are an island and living in Belgium. Yeah. That's, that's everywhere possible, also here. As fluid as the place is, it comes down to practicalities of well, where do you live? Because we need, you know, we need to know what tax you're paying. We need to know what amenities to service you with. Um, certainly people have tried to, 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 to take from one country and take from another country. But at the end of the day, they need some kind of system to say, you know, you live in Belgium um, and that's the front door system they've come up with, which is generally seem to be quite good. But in certain uh, in certain times, it's been a source of uh, annoyance. We have some uh, 90 line houses. You know a line house? Line house? Is this along the border? That's uh, uh, on the border, with the border through the house. So the house is in both countries? Yeah. And we have 150 parcels uh, with the border through. So. And was it, it was only in 1995 that the, the border was finally decided. Is that true? Yeah, then it was completely, the job was finished, ready. But uh, by uh, doing the job, there were some people surprised because they were thinking we are living in Belgium or the Netherlands and it was not the case because we have this front door rule where your door is, that's where you pay the tax for your country and uh, have your domicile. There was one lady and she was already 86, I think. And then they visited her and ring the bell and said, uh, Mrs, we have a message for you. Uh, you are not living in Belgium, you are living in Holland. And then she became angry and said, go out, I'm Belgium, I stay Belgium. <laughs> Healthy nationalism. <laughs> and that was, yeah, a problem. And then they went to, uh, the, the, the mayor with, uh, with some people from the Belgian town hall went 
to look to the situation and uh, the situation was very simple to solve. There was a door and beside the door there was a window and there's a frame of course and when you turn the frame 180 degrees, job done. It's the door, the door, the door again. <laughs> <laughs> so ingenious ways to, to hop over the border. Yeah. 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 Great. Hot a bit much to meet yeah, the mayor. Lovely, you look like a you look like a real filmmaker <laughs> as opposed to. As opposed to what? I don't know. I can't finish that sentence. I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the mayor? What does the mayor look like? No idea. Oh great! I didn't Google the mayor. What's his name? Is he the mayor of Barla Hertog? The Barla Nelson. Barla Hertog. So he's Belgian. Um, his name is France de Bont. Yeah. Met the mayor of Barla, uh, of Barla Hertog now, uh, uh, Mayor France de Bont. And uh, he is one of the mayors of Barla. He is the mayor for the Belgian part of Barla. Um, and we met him in the Belgian. Uh, mayoral office which is actually right on the border and as I was talking to him uh, he sat down on the Belgian side and the border was running between us and I sat down on the Dutch side so it was an international conversation okay so we'll just go in and he's will not interrupt them anyway I guess I guess this is the entrance hello Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Okay. Scottish. Uh, yes, Irish, Scottish. but from Irish. Scotland. I'm Franz de Bond. Oh, lovely to meet you, Mayor. Oh, pleasure. Oh. Nice How to are you meet doing? you. Thank, Thank you so much. <laughs> so that's the border? Yes, that's it is. <laughs> We're very, very proud of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Looks good. It is Belgian. That's over there. Hello. Very good. That's amazing. Do you want something to drink? Uh, yes. What would you like? Maybe some water. Water okay. or coffee or? Oh, I'd love coffee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you don't. Yeah. Okay. A coffee for me, if yeah. possible. Coffee, coffee. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks so much. Where would you like to sit? Which country would you like to sit in? I'm, I stay in Belgium. You stay in Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> we'll sit in the Netherlands. <laughs> Franz was a, an interesting guy. He was, uh, you know, he was kind of modest. He sat down and he he spoke in uh, in Flemish and had his translator Gita, uh, who was kind of translating for him. But very quickly, within a couple of minutes, he started speaking English completely fluently. <laughs> and uh, I was like, OK, you don't need a translator at all. Um, he was a, a nice guy, older gentleman. Again, just like Willem, he had uh, a family that's sort of uh, two identities. You know, he has uh, his children. Choose, I think one of them chose to be Belgian and one of them chose to be Dutch. So there's there's this sort of... Uh, 
constant thing of like people choosing their identities and and certainly every family in Barla seems to be affected by this. Because we live on the border, because we uh, every day we see it, you feel yourself more Flemish than uh, a, a real Flemish, yeah? Because we, we every day, it's, it's a lot, but we, 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 see, we see the border, yeah? And we are Belgium and they are Holland. Yeah? Um, that, that's true. Otherwise, um, it mixes more and more. My wife is a Dutch, it's a Dutch girl. My children, I have four children, two are Belgian, two are Dutch. They can choose what they want. So it's, it's mixing, yeah? Mm. But we, we know that it's important. One of my daughters was a Dutch girl and she wanted to be a Belgian. Why? I don't know, she wanted it. So, they so, so you, you think about it, what do you want to be? If they should, say, should talk to me and, uh, that we, I have to be a Dutch, that I have to be, uh, become a Dutchman, I never will do it. Why? I don't know. It's a feeling. Identity. Yeah, yeah identity. Yeah. So and yeah. otherwise the same, eh? Yeah, yeah. It's very strange. So in the in the World Cup, if Belgium play the Netherlands, what is your house like? It's a problem. <laughs> if Belgium wins, it's okay. <laughs> no, that's a problem. A problem. It's uh, yeah. It's it's a very important in our place. Yeah. yeah. You feel it. Yeah. You feel the difference. Yeah. Normally they, they come here to, to visit us and to see the, the, the enclaves. With Corona it was special because we had a lot of problems, a lot of uh, issues with Corona. Yeah, it's very uh, specific and that's why they came here. For instance, the, that the, the bar was open here and the bar was closed over there. A shop was divided in two and things like that. It was very spe special yeah. Yeah. and then they, they came. Yeah. Yeah. The benzine, the petrol stations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in Belgium the petrol is cheaper, so we have four petrol stations in a village of 300 inhabitants. Um, the cigarettes are in Belgium cheaper, so we have eight uh, cigarette shops. The fire, firework, fire, fireworks, firework yeah. in Belgium you can uh, buy other fire firework than in Holland, so we have six firework. The the and also the all, the, all the year eh? yeah. in, in the Netherlands you can all, only buy yeah, on three yeah, days yeah, yeah. firework. Firework, you can, you can buy it in Holland for three days, the last three days of the year. In Belgium you can buy it the whole year. The, we the supermarket? Supermarkets. The supermarkets are cheaper in Holland. Mm. So we have one, three supermarkets in Baarle Nassau. We have none in Baarle Hertog. It's very easy. People are looking where, where, where they can earn their money. But the European rules, eh? we think European everything makes the same, so no problem anymore. Mm -hmm. But the, the rules were, be, are becoming so specific that we get problems here. Yeah? Mm. Um, On a national level. So the, the national, yeah. Uh, you have European guidelines who are general, yeah. but then uh, they translate it uh, to a country, yeah. and then it's really specific, detailed, but also in the Netherlands, yeah. and then they conflict. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah. So yeah. the same guidelines will be slightly different in both countries? Yeah. yeah. 
it's getting difficult more and more. Mm. You, you, you should accept the, the opposite, yeah, that it would be a one, one uh, Europe, uh, no problems anymore here. It's not true. Mm. It's getting difficult and difficult because they are so specific. Uh, this village is just a village like another village. If you walk around, you don't see any difference. Yeah, that's normally we go to school, we go to work, things like that. Yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing special. If you go further, and then you go think, why is here a Belgian school? Why is there a Dutch school? That's strange. Yeah, and then there are two, two, two villages. Yeah, and then you see that it's different. That we are two villages together. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, you. You can only. Uh, um, Understand it when you when you see it. Yes, that's that's the the main course. Um, when we are in the in this town hall, it's a, it's difficult. It's 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 uh, um, it is speci special. Yeah, because when we want to do things together, Barleheber, Barlenasse, we have to talk about it. Yeah, like in a marriage, you want this, he wants that, but what are we going to do? Yeah, we have to talk to talk, and then we can de uh, decide what we're going to do. That's Bala Nasso, Bala Herta. Is it a good marriage? Uh, yes. <laughs> and it's, it's not a marriage. In a marriage you can divorce. We, we cannot divorce. Yeah? We, are, we are condemned to each other. We, we want to be condemned. Yeah? It, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah? That's, what you, that's how you have to see it. is called the treasure room. I was ill for half a year. Oh, really? Yeah, I was one of the first, uh, at least here in town. <laughs> uh, but then it, it, it took me about half a year to recover. And uh, so 2020 was a bad year. Over the last few years, especially, um, Ronald's had a, a rough time in the sense of, you know, he was, he, he got COVID. You know, he basically got COVID on the first wave, the alpha COVID, the really dangerous, really worrying time. Uh, and he, was ill for, you know, six months. Yeah. But there was, there was alpha COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so really. Was, uh, my body reacted, like I had infections everywhere. <laughs> it was really strange. Pneumonia, but my kidneys didn't work and, and it was terrible. Did you have to go to hospital? Mm, yeah, they took me to hospital. More recently, specifically in the last sort of 18 months, um, he's been affected by the, the energy crisis across Europe. Um, a lot of that's to do with uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, and basically the, the prices of things have skyrocketed. You know, 
the price of glass, the price of malt, gas, uh, the transport costs. These have all increased, so it's made it more difficult for him. He's basically had to put up his prices, but you know, as they go up, he's he's realizing that he can't start charging you know obscene amounts for his beer. So yeah, he's got, he's got a tough tough time ahead of him. Um, and another thing related to that is he had a pretty good customer in Moscow in Russia, and actually when he was taking us around the brewery, I saw that there was a you know a whole crate with with sort of Russia written on it, and um, he said to us like you know because of the war you know it's just not feasible anymore economically to to do that and um so he's kind of had to lose that very good client that he used to have um so yeah there's there's all these sort of rippling effects happening because of uh because of the war and because of the energy crisis number of breweries for beers and uh, the attitude of the beer geeks um, that they like to drink as or, or taste as many as beers as possible and that causes uh, the phenomenon phenomenon <laughs> Uh, that, that bars, for instance, uh, don't want to put your beer on tap continuously. They just want to buy one keg and then the next week it's a different beer. Because the beer drinker, uh, they, they want change. Mm. The quality can be better if people uh, stuck or stick more to just a few beers. Mm-hmm. Mm. If you like a beer, then why don't you go back to it? Mm. But in Belgium, we have a, a, a far more splintered market. Mm. It's, it's more s- small breweries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the number of breweries is, is too much now, especially in Holland. And then the, the uh, brew firms. Mm. And I hope that beer drinkers uh, will buy beers from uh, real breweries who brew their own beer. Mm-hmm. And I hope that breweries will uh, stop pissing in their own bathtub. <laughs> but for by brewing for third people mm. who call themselves breweries but don't have a brewery. Mm. Mm-hmm. A brewery brewers. is a place where uh, beer is being brewed and bottled. Mm-hmm. And not just a name. Mm-hmm. It's a beer seller. Mm-hmm. It's a different, different profession. Mm-hmm.
Welcome in the treasure room. <laughs> Real temperature change. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, year round, it's 13, 14 degrees. Oh, the wow. smell. This is what I mean with the smell of the oak mm -hmm. and the yeah. barrels. So we have Geneva barrels, new oak, uh, whiskey barrels. Brunello barrels. These are the oldest barrels the, with the port wine, or the port beer. Mm -hmm. Those, I think there are still five or six left. Mm, in three, 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 oh, only five. 2015. So they will stay here a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So you had the opportunity, I think, to visit um, uh, Ronald's uh, barrel room or barrel area. Uh, what was that His experience? Pride and, yeah. pride and glory. What was that experience like? Yeah, it was. It was beautiful. It was gorgeous. Um, he he lifted up the the cellar door, and we we went down the steps, and you know we went to see him in the summertime. So you know, above ground, it was you know, in the twenties, it was quite warm. And then as we went down, it just got cool all of a sudden of a constant, constant sort of, you're talking no more than 13 degrees. Um, and yeah, it was, it was lovely. It was packed full of barrels. This, you just were met with the smell of old wood, you know, and there was a kind of an echo when you spoke, it was very much like being in a, a sacristy or, you know, going down to, you know, some monk's chamber or whatever. It was almost a sacred thing. And, you know, you could tell that he was really proud of it. And uh, there was a little smile on his face and he was calm down there. So it was a, it was a, it was a real insight into what drives this man. He is proud of doing things differently he's proud of doing things in a unique way and certainly you know down in his treasure room he 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 let us taste some of his um his port beer as it were um and he was explaining to us you know he, he began brewing an american barley wine and then he would stop the fermentation after a few days by adding grain alcohol and then he would age it in these barrels and th this would be for years you know sometimes six years and the result is this this real sweet beer. It's, it tastes like a port, but it's like very strong. I think it's like nineteen percent. Yeah, it's. I can see why he is drawn to this, and you know he's a bit of a maverick in that sense. It, he doesn't just do things the easy way. He does them his way. Cheers. 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 Slantje. Slantje. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Oh. Wow. That's something you can do with beer. That's incredible. Wow, that's incredible. 
similar to, to a very old port, mm. mm -hmm. almost. Is it less sweet or something? Yeah. <laughs> it's made out of beer. Yeah, yeah. It's you could, more drinkable than port. I think you can have a couple of ports, but it's too sweet. Mm -hmm. This is very gentle. Very atmospheric. <laughs> this is the best, best place to be when it's a very warm, hot summer day. Yeah. Do you come down here often? Mm, every day. Mm. For work or for, for the mind? For cleaning and for sometimes yeah. tasting a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it's possible to age a beer for four years of just 6%. Mm. It's because the temperature is low and mm. constant. Mm -hmm. uh, many other brewers uh, that do barrel aging, they keep it at room temperature or even increasing temperature. So the beer is, is uh, forced into the wood in, in summertime mm -hmm. and squeezed out in wintertime when it's, when it's cold. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good way to think of it, but not when you plan to age for longer periods. Mm -hmm. Then you will definitely have infections. Mm -hmm. Is there anything in Barla which, um, in which beer kind of uh, clearly like crosses the border, or you know, which sort of jumps on to both sides of of the Belgian and Netherlands frontier? Yes, every year there is a festival, and it's called Hop Over the Grens, which means Hop Over the Border, um, and it is located. Um, actually on the borderline itself it's um it's where people come together uh breweries from the region and that's breweries from belgium breweries from the netherlands and they come together and they sell their beer all in aid of charity and basically the local people come together and raise a glass together so it's a very literal crossing of the border or hopping over the border um to sort of celebrate beer, you know, in any aid of good cause. And it really brings the community together. Um, you have brewers from all over the area come together. The mayors of both Barla Nassau and Barla Hartog are there. And they they sort of celebrate their what, what connects them through beer. So at this hop over the grens or hop over the border, beer festival, Belgian and Dutch people mix together, enjoying each other's company and sharing conversation and ideas. This year's was the fifth installment of the festival, another example of how the people of Barla continue to work together under difficult circumstances to ensure that these boundaries don't impact their lives and their friendships. On the exact spot where the festival takes place along the international border, the two villages of Barla Nassau and Barla Hartog are working together to plan the construction of their new cultural centre. There'll even be a swing so children can swing across the border from Belgium to the Netherlands and back. Beer was 
a part of evading the borders in battle during World War I, when the wire of death kept the two villages apart. Remember, when locals from Badala tried to cross the wire of death, they would use wooden beer barrels to hold up the electric fencing so that they could climb underneath. And today, through initiatives such as the Hop Over the Grens Beer Festival, the beer barrel is still being used to evade borders. At this year's festival, the beers of the Dokter van de Korenaar were completely sold out. At the centre of this story is a man who failed his university geography exam, but he still doesn't accept that he got it wrong. Ronald Mengerink and his brewery, the Dr. van de Korenaar, are living proof that in this life, you don't need to accept borders and boundaries and limitations imposed by others. You don't need to stop at the fence. You can go under it, around it, through it. You can hop over it. You don't need to make things in the traditional way. You can try things. You can fail. You can feel better. And in the process, you might create something beautiful. Thanks to Visit Flanders for their support in producing this podcast. Special thanks to Oshin Kearney and Kira Elizabeth Smith for their reporting. And thanks to you all for listening. My name is Brendan Kearney and this has been the Belgian Smack Podcast. Until the next time, love what you do. Mm-hmm.